So not too long ago, I was driving around with my son Judah in the back seat, and from the back seat, he asked me a question. He said, Dad, what if outside was inside and inside was outside? (laughs) And that question then began a game that he and I play from time to time as we're driving around or as I'm putting him to bed. We often walk through different scenarios. What if outside was inside and inside was outside? For example, we say, well, if outside was inside and inside was outside, then we would sleep on our beds outside and we would jump on the trampoline inside, right? You get it? This is not super complicated. My five-year-old son can do it. You can too. Um, Another example, if outside was inside and inside was outside, then we would take a bath outside, but we would swim in a swimming pool inside. Or if outside was inside and inside was outside, then we would vacuum the grass outside and mow the carpet inside, right? Uh, This, by the way, I think would make a great children's book. Please don't steal it. That is my retirement plan. Um, But I think Judah and I should partner together in writing this little book. But it's a great question. It's a fun question. What if outside was inside and inside was outside? Now, of course, the fun of the game is finding things that are unexpected. That's what makes it funny. And for you and I in our life, sometimes things happen that are unexpected, and it's funny. But also at times in our life, things happen that are unexpected, and it's tragic. And today in Mark chapter 3, we get a little bit of both. So open your Bible, if you would please, to Mark chapter 3 as we continue this series through the gospel of Mark of following Jesus in a fallen world. And today here in Mark chapter 3, we are really introduced to the primary characters of this gospel. And what's interesting is, number one on your outline, we're going to be introduced first to the insiders But the funny thing is that these insiders are a random group of men who Jesus calls to be his disciples, but the unexpected thing is these were considered outsiders by the religious leaders of the community. So insiders or outsiders are now made insiders. Then number two, we'll see the tragic side of this story where people like the religious leaders And Jesus' own family members, those you might have expected to be insiders, are actually the outsiders. And then finally, number three on your outline, we'll talk a little bit about application. Outside is inside and inside is outside. So again, grab your Bibles and open up with me to Mark chapter 3. We're going to take a look first at verses 7 through 12 which are really summary verses, telling us, reminding us of what we've seen up to this point. Mark chapter three, notice verse seven. John Mark tells us that Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples and a great multitude from Galilee followed and also from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Idumea and beyond the Jordan and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard all that he was doing and came to him. 
And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God! But he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. So here, John Mark, the author of this gospel, really is giving us a summary of everything we've seen up to this point. We're reminded of what we've seen through the first few chapters here in the gospel of Mark. I mean, again, notice he reminds us that Jesus is traveling uh, around the Sea of Galilee. Along the way, he's teaching and preaching. He's performing many miracles. He's healing people of various diseases. He's cast out many demons. We're also reminded here of the multitudes of people that Jesus' popularity is rising and rising. It's soaring. He's become so popular that he has to withdraw, that he has to put a boat out on the water so he can stand at a bit of a distance from the people just crowding around him. People are coming from everywhere to see him. This, again, is just really a summary statement of what we've seen The multitude of people who have come to follow Jesus. But starting in the next verse, we begin to zero in on the true insiders. The twelve that Jesus called to be his disciples. Let's look first at verse 13. Mark chapter 3, verse 13 through 15. It says, And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. So right here among the, the multitude of people who are now crowding in around Jesus... Notice there in verse 13, Jesus takes the initiative, he goes up on the mountain, and he summons to himself those he wants. And they came to him. Jesus here calls the original 12 disciples to follow him, to learn from him. Then I also want you to notice again what Mark tells us there in verses 14 and 15. He appointed 12 so that they would be with him. I want you to notice that phrase, with him. Jesus summoned the 12 so that they would be with him, but then he would send them out. Did you catch that? Jesus summoned them to be with him, but then having called them to be with him, he now sends them out. He sends them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. The same two things Jesus has primarily been doing all throughout thus far in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus calls these men to be with him, and then he sends them out to preach and to have the authority to cast out demons. So who are the 12? We find the list in verses 16 through 19. 
Notice Mark chapter 3, verse 16. And he, Jesus, appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. And James, the son of Zebedee. And John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. As you take a look at the list of the names of these twelve whom Jesus calls to himself, The list begins with really the most prominent of the three. You have first Simon, who heads the list. Simon really is the the leader of the group. And Jesus, we're told here, gave him the name Peter, which means stone or rock. Next on the list, we come to two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who Jesus nicknames the uh, sons of thunder. And these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, really are the most famous of Jesus' disciples. They're often found in the inner circle. Often Jesus will pull these three men aside, and they'll witness things the other disciples don't witness. These are probably the most prominent disciples, but they're not the only disciples. The remaining list includes Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, who we also know as Nathaniel, Matthew or Levi, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and least is Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Judas, of course, is an outsider, camouflaged as an insider. Now, unfortunately, we don't know a ton about most of these men. We can learn a little bit about them from church history. Uh, For those of you who are imaginative and creative, I do recommend you watch the show The Chosen uh, that creatively imagines uh, the personalities and the interactions among these men. But the bottom line is we don't know a ton about them. But there is something significant we do know about these 12 men. One scholar puts it this way. says, they were perfectly ordinary men in every way. Not one of them was renowned for scholarship. They had no track record as orators or theologians. In fact, they were outsiders as far as the religious establishment of Jesus' day was concerned. They were not outstanding because of any natural talents or intellectual abilities. On the contrary, they were all too prone to mistakes, misstatements, wrong attitudes, lapses of faith, and bitter failure. Even Jesus remarked that they were slow learners and somewhat spiritually dense. Yet with all their faults and character flaws, as remarkably ordinary as they were, These men carried on a ministry after Jesus' ascension that left an indelible impact on the world. Ordinary men, people like you and me, became the instruments by which Jesus' message was carried to the ends of the earth. 
from our human perspective, the propagation of the gospel and the founding of the church hinged entirely on 12 men whose most outstanding characteristic was their ordinariness. These are just ordinary guys. But these are the men that Jesus called to follow him. These are the men Jesus summoned to himself and then sent them out on mission for him. These are the insiders that Jesus chose. But yeah, these are not the men you would have expected to be the insiders. But outside is inside and inside is outside. These are the insiders not the people you would expect. Instead, what we see as we look at number two on your outline, what you might have expected to find among the Messiah's first followers are the people, tragically, who are here portrayed as the outsiders. Who likes sandwiches? Immediate hand up. (laughs) Seth, I love it. You're my man. Uh, it's about lunchtime. We're about 50 minutes away from thinking where you're going to go to lunch. And um, I love a good sandwich. Now, the issue I have is I have to eat gluten-free bread. And so gluten-free bread is kind of hard to find. But I have found what I think is the best sandwich, best gluten-free sandwich. It's at Jersey Mike's, the Italian sub. It's absolutely the best. Um, I get it Mike's way, but no onions. I don't like onions. But I love the gluten-free Italian sub at Jersey Mike's. It's a great sandwich packed with tons of meat. And you know who else likes sandwiches? John Mark, the author of this gospel. (laughs) Let me explain. So John Mark, one thing John Mark does, he uses a specific storytelling feature, a literary device that scholars call the Markin Sandwich. The Markin Sandwich. And he uses this literary technique no less than six times in his gospel. And what he does is he lays the first piece of bread and begins telling a story. But then he interrupts this story and then he packs on the meat in the middle and tells a different story. But then once the middle story, the meat is finished, he then resumes the original story, lays on the final piece of bread, and then we have the Markin sandwich. Does that make sense? And so that's what we're going to see now. And what we're going to do is we're going to skip the bread for just a second. We'll come back to it, but we're going to go straight to the meat to begin. So let's take a look at the the meat of the first Markin sandwich by looking at Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 22. We're going to come back to the bread of verses 20 and 21 in a minute. Let's go to the meat of verse 22. Mark chapter 3, verse 22 says, The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He, Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebul. And he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. So this begins the meat of the Markin sandwich here in Mark chapter 3. We're told this story of the religious leaders of Jerusalem, the center of Jewish faith, 
These people come, you might expect these people to be the insiders. These are, after all, the people who knew the scripture. They should have been looking for the Messiah, but they are not the insiders. They're the outsiders. But outside is inside and inside is outside. And these, the religious leaders, the people who should have known better, they're the outsiders. They, they come to Jesus with two accusations. Notice this. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying two accusations. Number one, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And second, he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. So these outsiders who should have been the insiders, they should have been the ones following Jesus. They should have known better. They come, they see the evidence, they've heard of everything that Jesus has done. Notice they can't deny the fact that he's casting out demons. So instead, they come up with an alternate explanation. And they accuse Jesus of two things. First, they say he's possessed by Beelzebul, a name that by this time is used to describe the prince of darkness, Satan himself. The religious leaders accuse Jesus of being possessed by Satan. And then the second accusation, which is somewhat contradictory to the first, they say, well, he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. So again, they can't deny the fact that Jesus has been casting out demons. He's doing these things that no one else can do. They can't deny what Jesus has done, so they come up with an alternate explanation and says, well, he's possessed by Satan and he's using this satanic power to cast out demons. So notice Jesus' reply, verse 23. Jesus called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. Notice Jesus points out the absurdity of these two claims. They, they really cancel one another out, right? I mean, they claim that Jesus is possessed by Satan, but then he's using Satan's power to cast out Satan's minions, his demons. Jesus points out the absurdity of it. If a kingdom or a household is divided against itself, it won't stand. And Jesus says, listen, Satan is not going to empower someone to cast out his own demons. Then he goes on in verse 27 and he says, no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Here Jesus gives another illustration of the strong man, the strong man being Satan, and his house is the realm of this world. Satan is the prince and the power of the air, and Jesus says, listen, no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he binds the strong man, and that's what Jesus has been doing. He's been casting out demons, binding the authority of Satan. So what Jesus is illustrating here is that everything the religious leaders have seen, these people who should have been the insiders, 
They have all of the evidence before them. They have the sufficient evidence to know that what Jesus is doing is not done under the control and influence of Satan, but under the control of someone much greater than Satan. But again, here we have the insiders, the religious leaders from Jerusalem coming and saying, Jesus is doing all of this under the power and authority of Satan himself. And because of that serious accusation, Jesus now issues a very serious warning to them. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all the sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. This is a famous passage, of course, and a lot of ink has been spilled trying to explain what is the unpardonable sin. And I've had people I've counseled in the past, Christians who think that, you know, have they committed the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin? Um, So let's explain this a little bit. You've got to understand Jesus' warning here in light of the greater context. These religious leaders have come, they have seen what Jesus has done, and they have come to the exact opposite conclusion. They have concluded that Jesus is doing everything he's doing under the power and the authority of Satan, not under the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit. And so I believe that the unforgivable sin that Jesus mentions here is this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit which is a conscious and deliberate rejection of the saving power of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. It's really attributing who Jesus is and all that he did to the power of Satan, not to the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the only unpardonable sin, you could say, is the sin of rejecting Jesus. Again, sometimes Christians have asked me, Oh man, I'm afraid that I've committed the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin. And the, really the question I would ask in return is, is, have you believed in Jesus? Do you believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins? If so, then no sin you do, past, present, or future, is unforgivable. In fact, if you've put your faith in Jesus, then every sin, past, present, and future, has been completely forgiven. You've been completely redeemed. There's no worry you need to have. But the only issue really at hand is the sin of rejecting Jesus. But if you take a step back again and and look at what's happening here in Mark chapter 3, the insiders... The religious leaders, the people who had the scripture and knew the scripture who should have been looking for the Messiah, they have come to this terrible conclusion that Jesus is doing all of this under the power, the authority of Satan himself. They were outsiders who should have been insiders. They should have known better. And that's the meat of the Markin sandwich Now let's take a look at the bread. Jump back up to verse 20. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. We come to the first slice of bread here in the Mark and Sandwich. 
John Mark tells us, and he, Jesus, came home. And the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people, or literally his family, heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. And then skip over to verse 31, the second piece of bread in this Markin sandwich. Verse 31 of chapter 3, Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Okay, so let's look at the bread, if you will, of the Mark and Sandwich. Both of these pieces of bread focus in on Jesus' family. Again, people who tragically should have been insiders, but are here portrayed as outsiders. Again, look at verses 20 and 21. It says, he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. But verse 21 says, his own people, his family, his kinsmen heard of this. And notice, they went out to take custody of him. They left to take custody of him. That phrase, take custody of, it's used elsewhere to describe arresting a criminal. They leave in order to put Jesus under arrest, if you will, because they were saying he has lost his senses. So here, tragically, people who should have been insiders, Jesus' own family, they're portrayed as outsiders. They hear about everything that's taking place. They leave, they go, they want to seize Jesus because they say he has lost his mind. I don't know if they had mental institutions in Nazareth and in and around Galilee, but this is the idea we get here. They think Jesus has lost his mind. That's the first piece of bread in the Mark and Sandwich. And then notice verse 31, the second piece of bread. Again, centering on his family. Then his mother and his brothers arrived. So they left and now they've arrived. And notice, standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are where? Outside, looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So again, notice the second piece of bread in the Mark and Sandwich also focuses in on Jesus' family, his mother and his brothers. And notice all of the times in these two pieces of bread that John Mark uses proximity terminology. People described as either being outside the house or inside the house around Jesus. So again, Verse 31 and 32, Jesus' mother and brothers, they're standing outside. They're not inside, they're outside. They send word inside, 
And the word says your mother and your brothers are where? Outside looking for you. Meanwhile, who is it that is inside with Jesus? Verse 34, looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. John Mark here very vividly using this proximity terminology shows us that relationship with Jesus is not defined by blood relationship. But those who are truly Jesus' brother, sister, and mother are those who do the will of God. These are the ones who are described as being insiders. But again, tragically, the outsiders are the religious leaders and even his own family. So what's the point? What lesson or takeaway do we have here from Mark chapter 3? Let's take a look at number 3 on your outline. Again, throughout this passage, we see this insider and outsider. Outsiders are insiders, insiders are outsiders. The people who are surrounded around Jesus, the people who are around him most close to him are those you would least expect. And those who are standing outside, those who are making accusations against him, are the ones you might originally suspect. Among the outsiders, again, are his family. They've come and they've said that Jesus has lost his senses. They've lost his mind. He's lost his mind. Now, thankfully, as we keep reading in the Gospel of Mark and into the New Testament, Uh, thankfully we learn that Jesus' relatives eventually believe in him. Later they come to their senses. But here at this moment in Mark chapter 3, they're the outsiders. The second group of outsiders, again, are the religious leaders. They should have known better. But instead, they're the outsiders and they come and they say that Jesus is possessed by Satan himself. Outside is inside and inside is outside. Look again at verses 21 and 22. These two groups of people. When his own people, his family, heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Jesus' family claims that he's a lunatic, And the religious leaders accuse him of being possessed. This, by the way, reminds me of what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, that Jesus must be liar, lunatic, or Lord. Lewis says this, he says, A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said could not just be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. And then he says, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. But those are the outsiders. People who should have been insiders. 
But on a positive note, we do see the insiders. Followers of Jesus that you wouldn't have originally expected. Not the men you would have bet that Jesus would have called to follow him. And among Jesus' insiders, really you see a band of misfits. This really is in many ways Jesus of Nazareth and his island of misfit toys. These are not the people you would have expected Jesus to invite to follow him. But the insiders, these 12 men, are those who did the will of God. They understand who Jesus is. They follow him. They're sent out by him. And so as we take a step back here from Mark chapter 3, it really begs the question of all of us. Am I an insider? Or am I an outsider? Am I an insider? Or am I an outsider? And to close, let me say this. This entire series is entitled Following Jesus in a Fallen World. And if you're a Christian, then I believe that God has some ministry for each and every one of us in this room. God calls all of us to follow him. And maybe you're here this morning and maybe you've been sensing that invitation to follow Jesus. Maybe you've been sensing that he's laying something on your heart, some type of ministry, some type of calling, some sort of uh, involvement in the church or outside of the church in the community. But perhaps you're protesting that invitation to follow him. You feel inadequate. You might ask, Lord, who am I? I'm an outsider. I've not been to seminary. I'm not trained. I'm, I don't know what I'm talking about. I can't do what you're calling me to do, Lord. But that is the very kind of people he calls. People who acknowledge, Lord, I can't do this. But you, Lord, can do it through me. It's been well said that the Lord doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. And I believe that every one of you in this room, if you have put your faith in Jesus, he is calling you in some way to follow him towards some sort of ministry for his glory. Look again at verses 14 and 15. It says, he, Jesus, appointed 12 so that they would be with him And that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. Can you imagine this? Like, I'm I'm speculating here for just a second, but my guess is none of these 12 men previous to this moment have ever cast out demons, right? Uh, But Jesus summons them, he calls them, he appoints them, for a particular purpose to go out to preach and to cast out demons in his name. Again, outside is inside, is inside is outside. What we see here in Mark chapter 3 is that the Lord uses ordinary men and women, people like you and me, in order to do things for his glory. Again, the question of the text, though, is are you an insider or an outsider? Outside is inside, and inside is outside.
Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, thank you. Uh, First and foremost, for the salvation you have freely given us and your son. And second, Father, we thank you that you call each and every one of us to follow your son. He calls us to follow him even in challenging places, doing things we never imagined we could possibly do. But Father, thank you that Jesus calls us and then he sends us out, he equips us by your spirit to do the very thing that he calls us to do. And Father, I pray for myself, I pray for each one here, I pray for those watching online as we wrestle with, if we're honest, the the fear of what Jesus might ask us to do. I pray that ultimately you would bring us to that point of just responding in obedience to that call. Whatever the ministry is, whatever the invitation, the calling is, Father, I pray that we would be found faithful. Uh, Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for setting us apart, the outsiders we are. Thank you for calling us to be your insiders, those used for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.